where last time we left off, um, we had that pretty much theme of the Lord does valiantly, and we used kind of a picture idea of Prince Valiant. The battle is his, and he does valiantly, and he wins, and he makes us victors. And then the Psalms had divided itself up into about three areas that we focused on, which was praise, and the other would have been anchored in as well prayer, and then the closing was in the promises of God. So we kind of mashed those all up on Friday morning and actually used that as an anchor to um, have a men's prayer breakfast. We prayed substantially, highlighting some of those things within the teaching, highlighting some of the prayers that um, Solomon gave in the dedication of the temple. It's a great way to find anchoring points of how to pray as read Solomon's prayer covers everything. And um, most importantly, it's a prayer that really covers us when we failed miserably. It's always bringing us back to the Lord in a manner by which we can turn to him. We can ask of him to forgive us of our sins and he as in accordance with First uh, John, is able to say in a wonderful way that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And so that's one of the things that we saw there as a picture of that. So too, when we move into 109, one of the themes that comes as a brisk contrast is not necessarily... Um, the victory that we have immediately as we did or as seems to be the theme of Psalm 108, but actually the victory that happens patiently as we wait for the Lord in deliverance. And so part of this, I think, could be phrased as we'll look at this. It could be a curse for the cursor or the cusser. Both of those words are related. It goes back even before Old English, but the implication is the same. It's somebody who has difficulty in the control of his mouth. And we know that if there's a difficulty in the control of the mouth, then there's something deep within the heart. Galatians will tell us that. Jesus, in several teachings, said that these things that are deep within the heart are the well in which the spout of the lips pour out. So... Now, he didn't use that language, so that was poetic license that I took, so don't try to find that. Wow, I didn't, the spout of the mouth and the cistern of the heart, so I was using poetic license there. But right now on this one, this breaks up into three areas too, and I was pondering, you know, with the title, what could be the best breakup, but it, but it actually has a area that that gets us initially really focused and that's how to call upon God. And it might be said, you know, a petition to the prince, a petition to the Lord, crying out to God. Those are covered in verses 1 through 5, with also in it a wonderful impartation of devotion, which I think is really important for us 
Do not keep silent, O God of my praise. Which is different than I think what we contemporarily find others saying or what we might say. Do not keep silent, O God of my misery. O God of the backhand. O God of my betrayal. Those things are emotions. They usually relate to things that we have gone through or maybe in the midst of. And that's a mischaracterization of God. And of course, I use that illustratively because the carnal man and even perhaps the undisciplined spiritual man and woman can say things, think things that that are not actually invoking the power of the Lord to do valiantly, but if anything, to be repulsed, offended highly. Do I think that in my life there's a fence in which God has backed up a couple of paces, turned the page on me that I might catch up with him and pages that I've not read? Um, I think that the Lord has brought me to a quiet place that I did not initiate but found myself and realized that the Lord had put me there and that there was a time in which I needed to reckon with him or even just trust him. So, and it's, you know, in illustration, sometimes you, you don't want to be redundant, but in the practical things, God certainly can have us at a place in which there's nothing we can do. And so, maybe you've found yourself there as well. For me, it was 4 a.m. at a bank, and I got locked in to the full to the full 101 passers-by that time in the morning that saw this guy locked between these two panels of glass. Doors that were locked on the outside, doors that were locked on the inside. If I went out, either of them, which I couldn't do to the interior, I would trigger an alarm that would bring the entire city and probably river SWAT force down on me. And I say that because when I desperately wanted to get out with only like just one gleaming bar in my cell phone, the Lord just said, can we talk? <laughs> yep, you got me, Lord. I'm a, I'm, I'm a captive audience. What can I do? So the vacuum's running. I'm thinking, oh, it's going to burn a hole in the carpet. The bank's going to go on fire. So you've heard that illustration. David, though, in this, and we're going to talk even historically what it may represent, comes to the Lord appropriately. Do not keep silent. In other words, there's stuff that he wants to hear back from the Lord, and he says, God, you are the God of praise. I don't like what I'm going through. It is terrible what I'm hearing concerning what others think of me, but I am going to praise you. I'm addressing you that way. For the mouth of the wicked, it says in verse 2, and the mouth of the deceitful have opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. In return for my love, they are my accusers. Notice this in verse 4, though. But I give myself to prayer. 
Thus, they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. But notice that pancake between all of the, what we would call the contemptible observations, what he's feeling, I will give myself to prayer. So in this, addressing the God of praise, we exercise the discipline of prayer. No matter what we're hearing, no matter what the disposition of people are, our appropriate response to the Lord is to pray. And that's the hardest time, isn't it? When it's a wahoo moment, when everything's just, you know, the best that you could have ever imagined. Easy to praise the Lord, isn't it? But when things are not that way, and your audience is vindictive and setting their teeth against you, it is so hard. But I think that in David writing this, is saying, now you know what I feel like. Why would David have been feeling like this in this time of penning a psalm? There are several different things that have been suggested. One might be that he still has suffered the scars, the wounds of how maliciously he had been treated by Saul. We might call that an administrative change of plans or a firing from what he had intended to sign up for and to be obviously effective in. And, and Saul was jealous and, and sent him on the run with murderous intent. Now lately, if you've been able to tune into the devotional studies, we're in John only chapter 8. We'll, we bypass that today. But it's all about the intentions of the Jewish scholars, the Pharisees, all those that are part of their, if you would, Congress, their spiritual Congress. They're in pursuit of killing him. And there's not one thing in the Gospel of John that cites anything that we would say is worthy of that. Now, I would say that people that are running for high office, especially in the areas of adjudication, they must feel that, don't they? When they're there and they're getting interviewed. And have you noticed that politeness and dignity is not a part of that confirmation process anymore? It's shredding. It's humiliating. It's vile. How, how have we come to that? Why would that be even considered acceptable? None of us would even put up with an interview like that. You got to, you know, for those that undergo that kind of a grilling and in which the intent is to break you or to make you so embarrassed or to snag you in something that once you said or perhaps that you did, and it means that nothing of what you are now counts, that's a, that's a violation of, of literally the grace of God because he makes us new. No one could stand, I would say, anyone here before the Lord if it weren't for grace and mercy, before our fellow man, based on things that we have erred and based on the fact that we're not perfect. But praise God, he is 
and he has redemptively shown himself in that regard. So in this regard here, all of this that he is saying paints a picture of the people that he has found himself hurt by. And we're going to see that in this psalm, and you've heard this phrase once before, maybe twice on the beach. It's what the theologians call an imprecatory psalm, meaning that basically to, to boil that word down so it doesn't sound too sophisticated, it means basically a poem in which the curse is being invited. It's a cursing psalm. Now, it's not a blasphemous psalm, and there's a difference. It means that there is penned here a desire that those who are godless or who are behaving abhorrently or whose intention is to take out a man maliciously, that God would do to them what their heart is dictating in its vileness to do to the innocent. So some have argued, well, David couldn't possibly have penned that because with it, it doesn't seem like he has God's heart. But one of the things we need to understand is that God is a judging God. He's merciful and gracious to us in this time. But there will be a time in which the times are up. There's no one left to be saved because there's no one on earth that wants to accept or receive him. And in that time, the completion of that time, it brings in a whole different dispensation of God to a Christ-rejecting world. And in that tribulation time, there will be the anger of God, the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. And one might say, but will he be using bad language? He'll be using force that speaks volumes. He doesn't need to use bad language because he uses powerful language. We use bad language because we believe that we are showing power. But we're not. And most of us who, you know, have grown up, and in particular, you know, I think my generation, you know, this, the 50s, 60s, 70 generation, um, we had loose language. Um, I remember it floating around. But I also remember ivory soap in the bathtub. Did you know ivory soap does float? Okay. Some of you generationally have been left out of that because we're all little liquid soap people. But the floating ivory soap, to me, always represented the potential discipline of mom. For me, if something escaped from my mouth, then I would be singing the song Tiny Bubbles. All of it, they're laughing because they totally get it. They could cite the Hawaiian singer that sang that song. It wasn't about a soap bar, that was about a, another kind of bubble. So we have to get you guys up for these archaic game questions. But ivory was 99.9% .9 pure and it floated. What? <laughs> You're good. You just Alec Trebexed me. I think I just got taken off of Jeopardy. But it floated. And, <laughs> 
And it was classic because that soap reminded me what my mom would do if she heard that from my mouth came anything that she qualified as blasphemy. That could be anything. If in anger I gave Robert an advance on what I was going to do to him, she met me halfway between my run and his escape, and that bar of soap was in my mouth faster than I've even seen her do dishes, and she was good. And I think she could even iron with her feet. <laughs> and so and so all of us, you know, all of us have the need to assess the corruption in this generation, in particular language. We have people that are saying things to emphasize a power or to create, if you would, even a Goliath mentality over the what they perceive as the weaker people, those that are dignified, those that are humble. And it's really despicable. It really doesn't do what they think it is that it's achieving. But we have people we have people in the highest echelon of our government. And I personally would say, I understand free speech, but there's a thing called decorum too. And I think personally, uh, if they're going to find football players on the field or basketballers on the court for taking advantage of their position on the field and insulting judges even in tennis, then I think there ought to be a penalty for senators and congressmen and presidents and judiciaries that use language for mayors. You know, the whole bunch ought to be kept, in my opinion, just shy of an... I, th I think we ought to just send them some ivory soap. Say, you're trying to float my boat? Here, float my soap. Because you don't impress me. And so... I know this deviated a bit, more than a bit. The emphasis here in verses 1 through 5 is, Lord, do something. But I like this, because this is almost what you just sense is the whispering of the Lord to him. I give myself to prayer. Doesn't that sound like someone? It does. When Jesus had a contentious time, in his overt ministry among the people, he would escape, not by threatening, but he would disappear and appear in the garden of Gethsemane. He would go there to have time of prayer, preparing himself for the early of the next morning while he resigned the things of the heavy day that he went through. And I'm just reminded, the mornings have been beautiful. Have you seen them? The, there was a sliver moon, like a quarter moon, and stars, and it's just been beautiful lately. But to me, that's where, to me, that's always where the Lord just does that touch of refreshment. But I cite that in this, um, I can see the Lord in this. I give myself to prayer. Not just think about prayer, but I give myself over to it. Just like you would for anything that you give yourself over to. Whatever it is that you say, oh, 
I would give myself over to that. Then ask yourself, would you then give yourself over to prayer? Or would the other be easier to give yourself over to? And most of us would say, I don't really understand the mechanics of prayer. It's because we haven't given ourselves over to it. When we give ourselves over to prayer, then God does something very wonderful, very mysterious. He gives himself over to us. Where we're offering him the stuff that has overwhelmed us, he takes over. And he underwhelms that, and he gives us a sense that I do believe is tangible in the spirit. In return for my love, they are my accusers. And that hurts. That's, that's tough love on the other side. But instead of writing a letter, making a phone call, gossiping, I give myself to prayer. Thus, they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Verse 5 closes out the do something, Lord, or if you would, the petition to God. In verses 6 through 20, it's judge the enemy. That's how this could be qualified. In the judging of the enemy, this is where the imprecatory part of it comes. It's basically saying, as you curse God and as you curse men, then this will come back on you. Or it might be said, as you curse man, made in the image of God, God will defend me in the image of himself. Set a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him be found guilty. And let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children continually be vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also from their desolate places. Let the creditor seize all that he has, and let strangers plunder his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy to him, nor let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be continually before the Lord, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because he did not remember to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart, as he loved cursing, so let it come to him. As he did not delight in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing as with his garment, so let it enter his body like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be to him like the garment which covers him and for a belt with which he girds himself continually. Closing in verse 20 for this area of the judging of the enemy, the imprecatory part of this. Let this be the Lord's reward to my accusers and to those who speak evil against my person. 
So is there a contradiction between one, as the author of this, David, a heart that followed after God, in terms of what he is saying, or is this just raw theology? In other words, he's not hiding anything. He was a warrior king. He was a servant of a king. He was a displaced husband and leader of an army. He did not have the privilege of being around his family in the ways that we would say would have represented domestic wholesomeness. What could this represent? Well, first of all, prayer can have, as this suggests, giving myself to it some real raw disclosures. Sometimes we think, well, when I pray, I need to have perfect King James. You know, I mean, haven't we talked, Rich, about how to address people with dignity and how to be able to use words that show decorum? So we're not talking about slanderous language with God. We're actually being honest in terms of, Lord, these things are ultimately going to be assigned to those who reject you, will not receive you, do not believe in you. They're accusing me now. And this is the way that I prophetically feel it's going to end up to them. One of the things that we need to understand is that David is penning this in a time in which they're looking forward to the redemptive work of God. They can't fully see the cross. As we look back on it, we can. We're the recipients in the dispensation of grace that allows us to have an altogether different mindset because the Spirit of God within us has worked a different mindset, actually has a different expectation of us. But these guys find themselves groveling for the will of God and wanting to have victory over their enemies. And God actually is teaching them how to do that. David learned very early that if he listened to the Lord and applied wisdom from God and trust in men that the Lord gave to him, mighty men, men of renown, then the victory would be God's. When he violated any of those tenets, then the victory was the enemy. But we do need to understand that Israel was to go and to rout the enemies of God, those steeped in rebellion, dysfunction, lawlessness, vileness, wickedness, basically turned over fully to sin. Now, we think when we watch movies of Egypt that it was, you know, just lovely. But I don't think so, at least certainly not at the time that the Jewish people had been there and Moses showed up on the scene. Things had gone from perhaps a dynamic dynasty to worse, and certainly the children of Israel were not doing very well. At one time under Joseph, everybody was doing great. But the spiritual man of that dynasty passed on, and surely and slowly, as the times changed, so did the attitudes of those people who once respected the God of Israel no longer showed respect towards him.
And what I'm saying is there was a decisive judgment of God against Egypt. Ten of them is what we have learned by plague happened to them. And there was loss of life. And there was by no means an interpretation of an indignated God who was challenging their theology and challenging their politics and challenging their domestic life. Everything that each once could have boasted in and even perhaps found themselves guilty looking over to Goshen, extracting them who had been protected in land granted to them by Joseph now were found making brick and beaten and starving. And God saw that. So David would have had from his studies, from his understanding of history, the, the, the clarity that when sin prevails, then a culture will ultimately fail. Sin has prevailed in our culture. Why? Though I don't know how it applies on this level, I believe that one of the laws of thermodynamics, and Christy would probably be able to precisely tell me which one it is, but of entropy, that things tend towards a state of disorder, then that, in fact, would be what our society experiences. We try to tidy up things, and we try to do it lawfully. But the bottom line is, once you move towards saying, okay, well, it got disordered, so I'm just going to make the boundaries a little bit wider. Okay, I've cleaned it up to that new border. I'm going to just clean it up to there and start another one, if you get the picture. Rather than going back to the beginning on a moral level, which, by the way, if you were able to catch any of, of the um, interviewing yesterday of the judge, it always is, what are you going to do? Are you going to overturn law? Are you going to overturn precedent? Well, the question is, who did you get your precedent from? Did you get it from God? Then she won't overturn it. Did you obtain your precedent through fiat, one voice that perhaps had not sought the wisdom of God or who had no heart for God and made a ruling that we know very well with regard to abortion was abhorrent. It's not the law simply that God accepts and goes, oh, that's okay. Well, you made a new law. Okay, great. I guess I was wrong. You know, guess I got to rewrite Psalm 139. I didn't have that one down, right? And so there has to always be a moral core to everything that we say is law that is to be honored. And if it lacks a moral core, you have nothing for it to attach itself to that isn't simply a wicked desire of the culture. Moral core needs to be established. It is precedent. It is found in the Bible. God's serious about it. And when we're serious about it and choose to be governed by it, it doesn't turn into a Sharia mile. That's a whole different kind of governance. That's where the intent of their law is to kill and to not give liberty. God's law is intended to tell us why we need grace and why we want him. 
why any other choice is foolish. So I simply say that though some have found this to be offensive that David would pen it, I'm looking at it thinking, hmm, makes sense to me. Because the ungodly will face a judgment that will make very much sense to God. And no matter what you think of it, he's not going to cushion it. It will be a time unlike any other time that has ever existed. It hasn't existed. The judgment of God from heaven to a Christ-rejecting world where Antichrist is on his temporary earthly throne, Satan's having an effect, it will be of no effect when God's judgment rains down. He will prevail, but people will be judged eternally. They will be damned. The imprecatory prayer, the Psalms, is indicative of a damning oversight of what happens when godless people prevail over the innocent. And in closing, in verse 10 through 13, or excuse me, in verses 21 through 31, but you, O God, the Lord, deal with me for your name's sake. See, we're, we're coming back now to calmer waters. Deal with me according to your name's sake, because your mercy is good, deliver me. See, we're clearly seeing a delineation. And this is important to let people know who have experienced a failure, which we all have. The Lord's not going to be dealing with you as is voiced in this 6 through 20. He's the God who, as we have come to him to give ourselves over to prayer, we have the assurance that there is with him, for his name's sake, mercy which is good. Deliver me. Notice the confession, this prayer of humility. I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. It's wounded, Lord. See, when people reconcile what is, in fact, truth and what has happened to them, but they let God heal them, then they don't think and do things that are the errant expressions of being wounded. Uh, every single one of us has been wounded by somebody, and it's traumatic. It's heartbreaking. It's, it's devastating. And nobody likes to go through it. Everybody wants to get out of it. And sometimes it just seems like it's never-ending. But when I'm able to go to the Lord because I'm giving myself to prayer, I have to have the belief that he closes this gap of great tension of maybe what is welling up in me, even though I believe this is a prophetic projection, the stuff that can well up in me, even to what I think of that person. And I've thought things of people that have behaved towards me like this. You guys probably haven't. I have. But coming out of it, poor and needy, with a wounded heart within me, I am gone like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like a locust. 
My knees are weak through fasting and my flesh is feeble from lack of fatness. See, he's describing actually what's going on while on the other end of it, he's now living in this reality of God's mercy and grace. Sometimes we say, okay, bring on the mercy. Bring on the good. Deliver me. And then all of a sudden we we say, well, wait a minute, it's not getting better. All of the things that I thought would be vanquished and vanish and, and rainbows in the sky and beautiful symphonic music, it's, it's not. It's cacophony. And there's still yelling going on, and my heart's still grieved. I still feel the wounds. But see, that is, I believe, the, the part of the discipline of what you and I are. We're psalmists. God has written a chorus on our hearts. He's given us a song to sing. And we do it not by how easy it has been for us, but how honestly we've accepted the difficulties and with trust and confidence believe that God would see us through. And I've cited this before. It's still one of the most, in my opinion, brilliant pennings of poetry. But looking back over time, his faithfulness shines as the reason my hope is renewed. And that was penned with one of Christie's pens on one of Christie's pieces of paper. But in a time in which I believe she could say that's where I was at, what came out of her was to be able to reflect on the faithfulness of God. Did you take that from a psalm? What psalm did you write that in? Yeah, it was, but it's a brilliant chorus. It's theologically brilliant. Looking back over time, his faithfulness shines as the reason my hope is renewed. Am I getting that right? Looking back over time, your faithfulness shines as the reason my hope is renewed. Yeah, renewed. So, she sang it much more beautiful. I remember I was crying when I heard it. The classic, shaking off locusts, shaking off with feeble knees, the feelings that he has deep within him, flesh, the fatness thereof gone, probably no appetite whatsoever, knowing that he's become the reproach, verse 25, to them. And when they look at me, they just shake their heads. Mockery. Help me, O Lord, my God. O save me according to your mercy, coming right back to it. See, that's kind of like, doesn't that kind of sound like a birthing situation? I'm sure that when a woman's going through the birthing process and all of that groaning's going on, which are at times inaudible, at times very audible, uh, it probably mimics a lot of the tension that we see in where we just left. Uh, praise God for for what women endure to bear children. Uh, because it would be unlike as a travail that anything men could appreciate whatsoever. But what I'm saying is there's that time where the travail it subsides, and they get a chance to catch a breath and then to go at it again to push. And it's travail, catch a breath, push, and it gets closer and closer and closer. And 
David, to me, is almost penning this in a way that I see that. He comes back. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your mercy, that they may know that this is your hand. What is his hand? His deliverance. Not only his deliverance and grace and mercy, but ultimately their correction and appropriate adjudication. You get what you sowed. You deserve what it is you've wanted. You've wanted too much of yourself. You get all of it back with interest. I'm not talking about the godly persons. Oh, yeah, you ruined it. It's all coming back on me. No. Grace and mercy is coming upon you. This speaks clearly of an enemy. It speaks clearly of those who are godless, lawless, have no intentions to bow their knee, no intentions to pursue God, every intention to create problems and difficulties for the people of God, for a person of God. Let them curse, but you bless. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let your servant rejoice. Just redialing in even for himself. Disciplines. Okay, I know that they're going to curse, but you, Lord, bless. And I think one of that is, okay, Lord, I already, under- I already understand based on what has been penned what will ultimately befall them. But Lord, now as my heart has been adjusted, as I am now being tempered and calmed and filled with peace, then I want you to bless them. And it's a spiritual truth that the kindness of the Lord, what, leads men to repentance. Most of us would say it wasn't getting popped in the head with the Bible or yelled at. It was overt kindness from the hand of someone or multiple people or just the way that God orchestrated an event in our life, and we just said, I can't stand it anymore. I mean, in other words, I can't stand myself running from him, and I cannot stand in place of justifying where I'm at. I, I have to indulge the Lord because it's, it's the most sincerest expression that I can even think of doing. I don't even know how to do it, but I'm going to try. So we try falling on our knees, throwing ourselves on our bed. Hopefully not throwing ourselves over a cliff, but doing something that's overtly humble. Picking up the Bible, praying. Praying to the point that you fall asleep on your knees and you have to crawl just to get into bed because your legs are paralyzed because you fell asleep on them as God teaches you what it's like to pray with authentic sacrifice. Let my accusers be clothed with shame and let them cover themselves with their own disgrace as with a mantle. I'm not going to, but let them, if that's the garment they choose to wear, let them wear it out then. I will greatly praise the Lord, he concludes in verse 30, with my mouth. Got to do it with your mouth. One of the hardest things to do on a Sunday at times is to praise the Lord with your mouth. Somebody got me at the door. I can't even remember who it was. But it was, a, it was a classic. Rich, how are you doing? And here's my mouth. And I remember I was just in chagrin. And I had to shake it off because 
my silence isn't what I meant, and it wasn't that I couldn't say anything good, but at the same time, I didn't have something just ready in praise. It's true, Saturday nights can be a very long morning for me because I'm up very early. But I remember that I was just in chagrin, and this guy was just, this brother was looking at me just waiting to have a good word from the Lord. And there I was. And then I think I came up with the classic. Doing good. Life's good. So even for me as a pastor that knows salutation and believes in it, just totally caught off guard. But the the brother just, you know, he just loved me through it. He made no judgment on me. Seems to me, Pastor, that you have nothing to say because you got the devil in your soul. You know how we can misinterpret? I have no reason why I was like that. Maybe it was to test him and how spiritual he could be to a pastor that had nothing to say. But from the time that I get on the door, if if I have already left and I come in the door, the handling of ministerial high fives and questions and so forth while I'm aiming for the microphone and my mind just goes into like this. Okay, keep happy face. Did I drip coffee on my shirt? You know. Greatly praise the Lord with the mouth. Yes, I will praise him among the multitude for he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those who condemn him. See, When we come here, we are therefore no longer condemned by those who out there have said that we are. So I personally believe that our spiritual union as a body of believers is one of the most essential things that we do. We could all be somewhere else this moment. And especially when at times I promise to have an expeditious teaching and it goes just a little bit longer. But what we did do was honor the Lord. We talked candidly from the Psalms about a man who lived his life and who in spite of great consequences and choices that he made, but also the allowance of what God permitted him to become big in, and that was bigger than the event, bigger than the problem, bigger than the loss. That's what I want to be. I'm not asking for those things to happen. I'm saying I want to be as big as those by whom scripturally I've read of who counted it as all loss in order to gain what? The surpassing riches of Christ Jesus. So I know what my spirit says is right. My mind agrees to do, but it's the body that says, you don't really want to do that, do you? And a part of me says, yeah, you're right. I was a little bit impetuous there. But really the spirit and, and my soul says that's the right thing to do.